Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today I have our Chief Science Officer from Tailored Coaching Method on the show to do a research review slash Q&A. Uh, so we bring Dr. Brandon Roberts on the show once again, and we're going to dive into three specific topics this week. So what we've been doing lately with these research review podcasts and blogs, so if you want to check out the blog, the article version, there is a link for that in the description of this show. Um, but what we've been doing lately is instead of doing a research review on a couple studies and going really, really in depth, we've been choosing three to five questions and still going pretty deep into the, the answers behind the questions, but bringing up research to back up our claims. And then it, it's a good chance for me to jump in and share more of my experience on the topic and what I've seen in the coaching setting as well, uh, which is fun for me. It's a, it's a little more collaborative, which I really enjoy. Today, we dive into whether or not periodization matters for hypertrophy and Brandon breaks down all the research pertaining to periodization outside of just strength and sports, but really more focused on bodybuilding, building muscle, fat loss, that kind of training. We're going to dive into how much protein you can actually absorb at once. And if there's an optimal amount of protein you need to eat per meal, which is a topic that's been debated over the years. And it's always been uh, a really popular discussion because there was a lot of myths pertaining to you can only absorb so much protein per sitting. And then people realize you can actually absorb quite a bit. It just kind of waits in your gut. And then how does that pan out? How much do you need? Some people say too little, some people say too much. So this is a constant argument in the industry, which it was really cool hearing his answer because we were able to clear that up and then give actual practical takeaways and options, letting you know that there's no one size fits all or black and white answer. So you're going to get a lot of different perspectives on that one. And then the last one is really cool. And I think pertains to a lot of the people we work with, because this, this topic comes up quite a bit too. And that's, does high cortisol levels prevent fat loss from occurring? We often hear about stress holding you back from reaching your body composition goals. One of the big things that happens along with stress is higher and chronically elevated cortisol levels. Cortisol is a stress hormone. So the question is, does that stop you? Does it actually stop you and limit your gains in the gym? Does it stop you from transforming your body? Well, the answer isn't as simple uh, as you would think, and it's definitely not along the lines that you would think, because I was kind of surprised with his answers as well, to be completely honest. But um, it was really good. And by the end of it, it made sense because he cleared it up and, and we really broke that down for you. So this is a really, really good and applicable podcast for our audience. So I'm excited about this one. So guys, as always, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a huge favor, take a screenshot of this episode, tag myself at Cody McBroom, tag Brandon at brob underscore 21 on Instagram. We want to thank you for listening and we want to share it on our story as well. And without any further ado, Let's get our chief science officer on air and dive into this month's research review. All right. So we are back with a research review Q&A. Um, didn't get a ton of feedback yet on which one people prefer one over the other, but we did get a lot of uh a lot of good feedback from just people liking the episode and we got a lot of downloads on that one. So, um, and I know I enjoyed it and I actually, when putting up the blog, it was kind of cool because just rereading the, the article version of it and, and getting a chance to appreciate the information. I think it's, it's just a good way for us to make it pretty applicable. Um, so I'm excited for this one because I think all three of these topics for me personally, I've seen uh, come up quite a bit with clients, with people who listen to podcasts, follow, and they're, they're things that I've personally dug into and researched over the years. Cause they're always been very, very, especially the first and last one. Those ones were like always ones that I always want to know about. And this first one we're going to get into um, I think there's so much back and forth on it 
in the strength training bodybuilding world that I'm really interested to see what you kind of pull together for this because there's a lot of different opinions on it. And, um, and, and as always, like with these style of questions or studies, I always have my own opinion going into it. So I'm always like nervous slash interested in what you have to say, because <laughs> you're going to bring the science. So, um, so uh, without further ado, let's, let's get into the first one, which is periodization for hypertrophy. So um, does it matter? And what did you come up with on the, the research behind this? Okay, so first I'm going to start with a small plug to actually go read the blogs because sometimes I slip stuff in after we do the interviews and stuff to like juice it up a little bit um, or I find something new or like a new study will come out after we record. Um, so definitely go check out the blogs on the website. They're pretty good. Yeah. So periodization, right? If we think about the history of periodization, it goes back to like the, the 50s and really before that. Um, but it was always about sports or essentially powerlifting or some form of strength training, uh, not necessarily about hypertrophy. And so you have this like weaving and bobbing of periodization through the years where the main outcomes in most of the studies are strength, right? It's like, did we get stronger? And, or, because you can't really test athletes on their athletic ability, you just have to use kind of a, a proxy measure, which, which sucks for athletes. Um, but the proxy is usually a bench, a squat, a dead right? Or like pressure, something like that. So as the, the literature is weaving, you know, we have kind of the, the block periodization, we have the linear periodization, we have undulating comes in, uh, then you see two different types of undulating, which is weekly and daily. Um, and then now, let's see, we have like a, where you can mix them all together, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, but you could totally do it on paper. And it's like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. Um, but to answer, yeah, right. <laughs> that was the first CrossFit. thing I thought with CrossFit as a strength. I call my, I'm not a certified strength and conditioning specialist, but I call myself a strength coach because that's the people I learned from back then. And when first CrossFit first came out, I was like, this is all wrong. This doesn't, you can't do all this at the same time. This doesn't make sense. Um, and there's some really smart program designers in CrossFit now. So I will say they, they figured it out, but um, that's a good example of that. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of like, um, even in, in certain sports, I was trying to think of a good sport off the top of my head. Um, I mean, football is like the go-to, it's like the golden child for strength and conditioning is like everybody bases things off football and then they adjust for different athletes. Um, but you, you can, you can get pretty close. I think in CrossFit, it's hard to be awesome at everything, but using a good periodization uh, model, you could be really good at everything. Yeah. Um, but for hypertrophy, the, the literature is actually quite clear. Um, and that's, it doesn't really matter, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so there's, there's two meta analysis on this by the same people. Um, I forget his name, but Schoenfeld's on them. It's like 2017, 2019. Yeah. Um, Ergich, I, I can never pronounce his name right. Um, but anyway, so he does two meta analyses. The first one is just like, does periodization matter? Like not even what type, just straight up periodization. And the answer is not really, no. Like there's not a, a significant effect. It's not, It's really like, if you look at the data, it's like, eh, that's nothing at all. Um, a, another study could pull it back to completely zero or push it the other way if it was big enough. Um, so then it's like, all right, well, what about these different types of periodization? Let's say, you know, I just told you, 
the the traditional, the linear, they're kind of strength-based. So what if we look at the DUP and, and kind of versus the linear stuff, what happens if you split them out? Um, and then, so there's not a meta-analysis. And again, there weren't really any, any strong effects for hypertrophy. Um, strength definitely, you know, has its pros for certain sports and certain applications. Um, but for hypertrophy, like volume matters way more than anything else. Um, so what I generally tell people and what I've been telling people for a couple of years now is like, try to make a program, right? I'm not saying programs don't work. I'm just saying periodizing a very specific way is not better than periodizing a, a you know, very specific other way. That's all, that's all the, the take home is, right? I think that sometimes people misunderstand um i mean not even that it's just i, I think people i don't know if overdefine is a word but overdefine periodization right because to an extent periodization is just having a plan so i would even say this like so for those different studies that show different types of periodization was volume equated in those and that's why they ruled out periodization not mattering because the volume was there and that's how they equalized it so there are a couple, yeah, that did that specifically, um, but a couple being like one or two. So basically, there's just there's just not much. Like you would think periodization is this old thing, and we have you know hundreds of studies on it. But but when you whittle it down and you really look at just hypertrophy, there's like I don't know twelve to fifteen uh, good ones, and then you have some some not great ones in there too. But yeah, I think I think you made a good point with you know just periodization is is ill defined and again having a plan is important and making sure that plan adapts to whatever you're doing is also really important. So I think I think you do that really well with with pretty much all of your clients. Well, and here's the thing too is like if somebody goes through you know a program of ours that doesn't periodize in a way that it changes or undulates or waves or anything like that over the course of six months let's say they sit let's say they do the same basically the same shit for six months straight but we have a deload every fourth week which means i'm going to push them a little bit harder on week three you know so it's kind of like we kind of accumulate intensity until we take a deload and then we rinse and repeat well that's kind of in a way you're periodizing because i'm planning to push you harder over these next three weeks take it back and then rinse and repeat um, and that's where i think people over over glorify or over define, or they think of periodization, they just think of powerlifting and Olympic lifting and how detailed that can be. Like if you look at like old Russian textbooks of strength training, I mean, it gets crazy. So it, it really comes down to simple periodization, I think does work. Cause even if people, I mean, you know, people like this personally, I'm sure where you look at their program and they're jacked as hell. And you're like, dude, you're, it's so simple. Like you're doing the same shit over and over again. It's like, but what do they do? They have a progression model there. That's a form of periodization in a way. You're planning to progress week after week. And then you know when you're going to change exercises, be that every four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks, depending on the person. You know when you're going to deload. Um, if we put all those things into like a written plan, that's kind of a periodization plan. So um, do you think it's wrong to say, rather than saying periodization doesn't matter, uh, saying that periodization is far less complex with, with hypertrophy or need to be far less complex? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the, the interesting thing you mentioned is, is deloads, right? Because like those really aren't studied that much. Um, 
but we know that you can push and accumulate your intensity and your volume. Uh, we also know, I think everybody's done this at least once, is if you go too like too much volume, too much intensity for too long, you just kind of like get injured or crash and burn or you know something bad happens. Uh, you can be an elite athlete and just do it longer, right? So like if you're if you're a really good athlete, you know physique athlete will say, I push some to like eight weeks without a deload, right? That's a long time. Whereas like during prep myself or when I'm dieting in general, like three weeks. I'm ready. Like I'm good. Like three weeks, and then I'm gonna take a week of you know, twenty percent less volume or something like that. So, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's it's. I, I like how you put it. I think uh, I tend to do the same thing. Just with a busy lifestyle, I've I've found that like every four weeks is good for me. I need um, exercise variety just to keep me motivated in the gym. So what I tend to do is I actually run typically three week blocks for myself, and um, I do a deload in between. So it's like the deload week, I usually make the exercises different by making them easier and kind of fun. So it's like, instead of doing a dumbbell Bulgarian split squad, I will do like a, uh, like an offset kettlebell front racked Bulgarian split squad. It's like fun and challenging and weird, <laughs> yeah. far less systemically fatiguing. Mm-hmm. And I still do the movement and it's kind of acts like a deload. And then I get into the first week of the next program, which like allows me to do that um, with clients who are newer, I'll do four week blocks. And I'll kind of do the same thing, but week one is always uh, kind of like a learning curve. It's like, okay, now we're going to be doing this variation of split squat that you haven't done before. So go lighter because I need you to learn it. Kind of acts like week one being a deload instead of week four, because week one, they go easy trying to learn the movements. Week two, they can finally start to progress a little bit. Week three, week four, they push themselves because they're used to it. Week one of the new program is different, right? And we just keep the compound lifts because those are going to probably stay around for long term. But um, there's ways you can play around with that. I think that's kind of the art of programming. Um, however, I think my big, cause I've dug into this quite a bit and I've like, uh, I even remember I read an article. I can't remember who wrote it. And uh, it was interesting cause it was like a reverse. Um, what did they call it? I think it was just reverse linear periodization, right? Where essentially instead of lowering volume and increasing intensity, it's like, Hey, let's lower intensity and increase volume just slightly week to week. And actually you actually accumulate more volume on paper. And I was like, Oh, that makes so much sense. Like that's an easy way to accumulate volume over time. Um, that's a great periodization strategy for, for hypertrophy for bodybuilding. And then I like, this is what I do with everything. I was like, let me go to mass and I'm going to do the search thing, uh, mass research review. And I go into the search bar and I type reverse linear. And of course, Eric Helms reviewed a research paper and it showed that it actually was uh, inferior to regular linear periodization for hypertrophy and strength. And I was like, Oh, well, shit, <laughs> you know, that doesn't make yeah. sense. And, uh, but that's, and that just goes to show like, cause his answer was the same thing. It was like for strength, this works really well, linear periodization, block periodization, but for hypertrophy, it's just, I mean, what way of training is going to keep you going long enough to be consistently doing enough volume to stimulate your muscles to grow. It's kind of what it boiled down to in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's that simple. And I mean, it's, it's not fun. Like, it's not fun to say like, it doesn't really matter for the type, but like, that's the truth right now. Like, I I don't think, I think I said, we only have a few studies, but we have enough to, to know that there's not going to be like a huge swing, like not even like a 5% creatine-esque swing. Like it's just minimal. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, science does that with a lot of things like calories in versus calories out, you know? Um, and, uh, and, and I was trying to make a post that articulated this well, 
I'm sure I'll get people to get angry. Cause even I, uh, <laughs> I did a book. What did I, I wrote something about, um, like your diet's not the problem. Your patience is it's very much. So just like the concept of like, Hey, just be patient. Like diets take a long time. And this one guy got so mad. He was like DMing me all these studies. That was what I told you. I was like, you have any evidence on this? But he was just going off because apparently I knew nothing. Um, I was like, dude, you're taking this very far out of context for like the one, like the 0.1% of people that you're talking about who have um, metal toxicity. Like I'm not talking to that person, like just calm down. But my point is I was trying to make a post that showed because like intermittent fasting is a good example of this. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the health benefits that we're going to see from intermittent fasting actually are accomplished with a calorie deficit as well. Um, you know, so like if, if we start looking at all these different types of fad diets or strategies and we see, okay, what are like, what do studies show it does to our health, to fat loss, to blood markers, all those things, hormones, both positive and negative, you know, even like, um, I know when we did the one on intermittent fasting, like there was a decrease in thyroid, increase in cortisol, kind of like there's different things that happen metabolically. Well, the calorie deficit does that too, right? Insulin sensitivity improves. Calorie deficit does that too. You know, like there's, so I think people get mad because it's so simple. And this is kind of similar to that. It's like, well, at a certain point, you have to be okay with it's not like crazy sexy or it's just, it is what it is. And I think if we understand that, I think at the end of the day, like you're going to be able to be, get the better result because you can just be consistent with the simple shit that works really. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want the complex stuff, go into cellular muscle biology, go read some of that stuff. That's pretty complex. Yeah. Right. Then you can get into your like little mechanisms and like in this scenario, you know, but for, for simple stuff, it's, it's hard. Like, and you want to make it as, as simple as you can for people, especially newer people to, to training and, and nutrition. It's like, we don't want to make this hard. We want to yeah. make this easy because then you'll stick with it. Yeah. And sometimes even like, I even have, uh, I was reading, it was, uh, do I have it in here? I don't think I do. It's a textbook, but it's a, it's a, it's a sport nutrition uh, and metabolism textbook um, that was just required reading in one of the sports nutritionist courses I did. And it was uh, like the whole chapter, there's a whole section on energy system, systems, for example. And there's a lot in there that allowed me to understand the mechanisms behind why some things happen, but didn't change the application of how I coach people on it whatsoever at all because like you already kind of know why it works but now i really understand the deep-rooted reason and i'm never going to share that with a client because it doesn't matter to them you know what i mean it's still yeah well you still got to do the same thing so um i just caution people because i think sometimes you know you can go deeper to understand and some people need to understand that i think we're both yeah. that way you're clearly that way because yeah definitely everything <laughs> to the core um but no i think it's uh, keeping it simple smarter and what i would recommend to people is if we know that okay, we can do linear periodization. We can do no real periodization at all and just make sure that you're pushing yourself in the gym and trying to add weight over time or reps. Um, you can do um, linear block, undulated, whatever you want to do, right? There's these different tries. As long as volume, you can, you can look at your volume, make sure you're doing enough to grow. Use that as a, as, a, as a free pass to do whatever you have the most fun with, right? Like, so I know for me, if I don't do a variety of rep ranges, I do get bored. So I actually like more of like a weekly undulated model. So I have a couple lifts that stay in the step, same rep range, my compound lifts every single week. And then I have a couple lifts where like my deadlift, I'll do like low rep strength, then I'll do speed. And then I'll do like more trap bar hypertrophy, like eight rep range. And I'll, I'll change that, you know, every week on a weekly undulated rotation, 
just because it keeps, it just is exciting. It's fun for me, right? I'm not, it's not going to make me the absolute most like strongest I'll ever be at that lift, but it's fun. And then all my accessory work is just double progression method. I stay in this rep range and I just keep cranking on it till I can't progress it. And then I change exercise, you know? So, um, but it kind of gives you freedom and flexibility to train how you want to train as long as you make sure your volume is there enough to grow essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think we're opposites in, in, in how we actually train personally, because I, like, I don't like undulating at all. I just, I just, I just don't like it. it I don't know why I've never been a fan. I'm a, I'm actually a reverse linear fan. Like okay. when I look at my sheets, what I have on it, it's that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, eh, it feels good. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'd be interested because the, the article I re- read on reverse linear was, it was pretty outdated. So I'd be interested. I don't know if they equated for volume or what, but I know I read that it was inferior to linear, which really surprised me, to be honest with you. It, it very, it really did. Cause when you calculate, all right, I'm doing three sets of eight with this, this week, and then three sets in like nine, 10, you calculate, it's like, that should be more tonnage. But um, I can't remember their theory. I'll have to look that up because now I'm interested, but, um, but that's a good point. I mean, again, like what keeps you pushing hard in the gym to make sure your efforts there I mean, that's, that's truly what matters most. I think obviously you got to do enough volume in the right exercise too, but that's a side. Yeah. Still got to do the work. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, any other conclusions on that one before we move to the next? No, I think that, I think we, uh, we covered that one sufficiently for sure. Perfect. All right. The next one is a very, uh, I haven't got this question in a while. I actually did get it. Obviously I got it on my Instagram. That's why I put it here but this used to be something that was talked about all the time. Um, how much protein can be absorbed at once? And there, is there an optimal amount per meal? Cause I remember once upon a time, there was like this whole thing of you can only absorb 20 grams at a time or 25 and then it became 40 or something like that. But there was a number that they said, and that's why people were like, you have to have six protein feedings per day kind of thing. Um, so I've been asked this a couple times recently. It was the first time I've been asked this in a long time. So I'm glad we threw this in there, but break it down for us. Yeah. So this, this question is, I'm going to change the question because it, this is what people usually mean. Um, because when you eat protein, you like absorb all of it. Uh, you, if you don't use the nitrogen in the protein, you kind of urinate it out. Um, so, so you absorb it and then you just kind of dump it if you don't use it. Uh, so we'll kind of answer a different question. And that is how much is beneficial for maximizing muscle protein synthesis because that's what these people care about, right? Hypertrophy, MPS, you want to elevate it so you get bigger eventually, right? Um, and so that's where the literature is like still evolving, right? It's like I was pulling studies from like 2020, 2021. There's one out of this year that's cited in here. Um, and so what we've kind of figured out was it used to be about 20 grams, like 20, 25 grams. Um, and that's enough to elevate muscle protein synthesis if you're just kind of like sitting around, right? So say, you, you know, you wake up, you have a shake or you have breakfast and it has about 20 to 25 grams of protein in it. Okay, cool. That's, that's still pretty much right. Um, but when you train, right? So all of us are resistance training in some capacity, you have this, uh, natural or responsive elevation in muscle protein synthesis, right? So it lasts for untrained people, it's like 48 hours. For trained people like you and I, it's probably 30-ish. Um, but when we intake protein during that time frame, 
we get like a, a, a bump. There's like a little bump in muscle protein synthesis that we're trying to happen. And that was the idea behind the uh, anabolic window, right? And it, it turns out that this window is pretty big. Like it's like 24 to 30 hours, but you know, you can still have your shakes after your workout. That's fine. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the background of it. Uh, so there's a couple of really nice dose response studies that try to figure out, all right, after training or with training, how much protein can be, is, you know, maximizes muscle protein synthesis. And so they did, um, so this Woodard et al. 2013 is a beautiful study. They basically did zero, 10, 20, and 40 grams of protein. Um, and if you look at the results, it's like, it maximizes somewhere between 20 and 40. And I have a feeling that if they did 30, it would have hit about there. Um, but it's, let's say 25 to 30% more than if you were just sitting around. So you can now bump up your protein when you're training or after your training, which if you're training like us, you know, if you're training four times a week or even three times a week, you're pretty much always kind of in that, that extra bonus zone. So what I tell people is, you know, 40 grams is, is pretty dang safe. Like you could probably get away with 30 and be fine. 30 to 40 grams. Um, Maybe if you're a little smaller, 25 grams uh, in one meal. Uh, there were some other studies with um, beef protein. And so they're kind of interesting because it's like you have your, your whey protein, right? Digest really quickly. And then your beef, which digests super slowly because it has fat in it and stuff. Um, and so there was a series of studies that basically compared like 30 grams protein to beef versus 90. And there were like no differences in muscle protein synthetic response. And, you're, and then you're like, okay, well, that means 30 grams is as good as 90. Okay, so let's do 30 and 70 was the next study. They're about the same. Um, and then there was again an, another dose response study, this time with beef, that did 0, 12, 24, and 36. And it looked like somewhere between 24 and 36 kind of it maximized. Um, so all of that to say, you know, you're really safe if per meal you're between 25 and 40 grams of protein. Like, it doesn't matter necessarily how big you are, which is surprising because there's actually a study that looks at um, two different size groups of like muscle size, um, how much muscle they have on them. And it didn't make a difference if they were big or small, the protein still had the same response. Um, so that's, again, what I generally tell people is, you know, 25 to 40 grams in general per meal is pretty safe. So that's kind of the, a lot of research summed up in a little bit of time. So one thing I've told somebody, and I'd, I'd be interested if this changes, uh, not necessarily the result of the study, because I don't think it's what they were obviously looking for. But, um, you know, if you eat 70 grams of beef and you absorb right then, 30 to 40, and that's, it gives you the peak of muscle protein synthesis and it kind of stays there. Um, the rest of the protein is not wasted. It's going to sit in your gut and it's going to slowly, the amino acids are probably going to slowly go into your bloodstream over the course of time, which is also why if you have 70 grams in a meal and then you know you're going to eat another meal in three to five hours, like it kind of doesn't make sense to have that much protein in a meal. So have yeah. less if you're going to eat again. But like, let's say that was your last meal of the day. Is there anything uh, that shows better muscle protein synthetic response five hours after that meal, you know, like if they ate that at nine and went to bed, 
and they were, you know, how are they doing in the morning, right? Is there more peak of amino acids and, and protein synthesis because they had a bigger bolus before they went to bed? I know there is studies that show casein because it's a slower digesting protein, but um, would that change the benefit or the absorption or what you would look for? So it's really, it's kind of frustrating when you look at the NPS research, um, because they've done so much, but there's so much more to do. Like the majority of studies is in like either EAAs or whey or some kind of plant-based protein, um, like isolate uh, or in beef, right? And so, I mean, like we eat chicken a lot. I eat a lot of chicken and there's like no studies with chicken. Um, there's very few, I think there's probably two or three studies with mixed meals. So like a, a dinner, so you had yeah. dinner, right? So it's like, okay, well, there are no studies to answer the question you're asking. Um, there's one study that gave protein overnight, like the old school bodybuilders do. And they found that, hey, it, it elevates it um, overnight, but, you know, it like didn't make a monstrous difference. So yeah, it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard. I tell people the if they're, if they're concerned or they're not going to eat for a long time, eat maybe a little bit extra and in with something that digests slowly over time to get that benefit if it exists. Okay. What would your, I know there's no research on, what would your hypothesis be? Like, do you, cause I think the, the thing that comes to my mind is, okay, well, I only need to have 30 grams per meal. I only eat four times a day. That's 120 grams of protein. Yeah. I weigh 170 pounds. I'm going to eat yeah. more than that. So is there no benefit in me having more than 120 grams? And I personally would say, I mean, there's two sides of me. The bro side is like, no, I'm eating more protein. And then the other side that kind of looks at the evidence would say, well, if I have a little bit extra in every meal, I might not utilize all of that in every meal, but the compound effect leads to when, because between my last meal and my breakfast, it's usually 10 to 12 hours. I might have more total muscle protein synthetic responses and just more amino acids in my bloodstream, I might build more muscle because from a 24 hour period, I have a better MPS response. And I know, I don't think they have much research to, which is very surprising to me that they don't have that, but. Yeah. Uh, and, and the, um, the problem with it is, so when you just eat, like say you're just having dinner, right. And no training's involved at all. Um, the MPS response is pretty short. It's only like four to six hours. And most people therefore, because they've studied the, the four to six hour mark, for so long, they don't really study 12 or 24 hours, right? Like there are a few, but um, I think like that's that type of study is very much needed where, you know, you have a dinner and then you measure MPS over the evening and into the morning. Now, the problem is you're taking biopsies or you're, and you're measuring water and you're, so these people aren't sleeping. Yeah. Right? And so that influences things. Um, but you could do it there during the day and kind of get to the same thing. Uh, most of yeah, most of the research is just under like five to eight hours. So it's hard to really even extrapolate. I mean, I'm sure like there is some benefit because if you look at the meta-analyses, right, you're, you're, if you only ate 120 grams of protein, you're under the kind of like recommended for strength and hypertrophy, right? So you're like, well, smart person would just distribute it over the course of your day. And then maybe if you don't, if you have extra, so you did 30 grams at each meal, like three meals and you just backload your last protein meal because again it's not going to hurt you so if there's an effect you want it yeah and i think that's why ultimately it makes sense to do so um 
not to just eat more, but just eat what we say, you know, what 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound, depending on where you're at. And obviously 1.2 is over the top. That's usually like if you're in a cut or if you're a, like when I work with like a hundred to 115 pound female, we're going over your body weight and protein most likely, um, yeah. which is actually a good question. You know, if you have somebody who is a hundred pounds and they technically only need 0.8 grams per pound of body weight, would they get more benefit out of having that 30 gram? Because if they only eat, you know, three or four or five, if they eat four or five meals a day, they're not barely even hitting 20 to 25 grams, you know? So would they benefit from 30 grams, even though it's over their body weight? Probably, you know, I, I think that's a good, that's a good practical change that you can make. And maybe it's even like, so yeah, so four meals, that's 20 grams of meal if you're hitting 80 grams of protein, um, which is again, not much. So you could go 30 or you could maybe modify one of your meals to have more or less. Um, and kind of like your snack maybe has 15 or 10, right? Because they're not like always equally spaced. Um, so like if you eat 8am and you eat breakfast and then 1pm you eat lunch, like that's a good gap. Yeah. I mean, so, and you're not going to eat when you're sleeping. Most people don't anyway. So yeah, you, could, you have some wiggle room for sure though. I'm sure you've done too. I, I I had a protein shake at my nightstand when I was like 19. Oh man, don't <laughs> take me back. Don't take me back. <laughs> no, we've all done it. All the bros listen have done it. Um, but no, I think, and I think that's kind of, it's a good, almost like recommendation range of like, okay, we know it's 0.8 to 1.2 is a good general. Maybe the lighter, smaller you are from your total frame, the, the higher you are on that scale and the larger you are, the lower you are, because like you said, they didn't see a difference in the muscle protein census demands, right? Um, I also, I know it used to be more talked about. I don't know if this would influence it as much as, as we thought it would. I would assume it still does. And this is why plant proteins aren't usually as beneficial, but, um, what's the leucine like even in that meal? You know, we know that leucine is going to be the amino acid that spikes MPS the most. So a 30 gram meal for people listening from quinoa is going to be different than a 30 gram meal from egg whites, which is really high, you know, in, in leucine and even, I mean, there's differences in leucine between beef, chicken, fish, egg whites, whey. I don't think there's enough of a difference to worry about maximizing your leucine between those animal-based protein sources, but there is a difference between plant-based versus um, animal-based. And I think that that's where like you might have to, which is hard to do, but as a plant-based individual, this is one of the reasons why it makes it hard. Not only do you have to like struggle to try to hit that 30 gram mark in a meal, but it also is probably not as beneficial as 30 grams of say whey or Greek yogurt or egg whites or something like that. Yeah. And there's a, um, there's a review that just came out. Um, it's by Chad Kirksick. And I only know because I just saw him down at ISSN when I was presenting some data. Um, but it's, it's pretty good. Like it covers plant-based protein, like the whole spectrum. Um, and it actually is very close to the con ed that our coaches got on plant-based proteins. So I saw that and I was like, man, like I, I was planning to write that up. Like I had a couple of pages already and he published it. Like, <laughs> Meet you to it. Yeah. It's okay. Uh, it happens all the time. So uh, I feel like I had one more question about this topic. Oh yeah. Just uh, in general, um, before we close out the protein thing, what, what are your general thoughts on um, protein overfeeding? I mean, you know, I think there's, from what I, I like using a, pretty damn high protein diet for people trying to lose fat. Like I think mm -hmm. if you have less than 10 pounds to lose, I think it's very valuable. If you have like, if you're on like 
a 50 pound fat loss journey is no point. Um, but even, you know, like for somebody like me, for example, I'm, I doubt I'll lose. I'm, I'm on a cut, a really sustainable, mild cut. So I just don't do well with aggressive approaches, but I doubt I'll lose more than 10 more pounds, but I'm eating, you know, good amount above my body weight. You know, I weigh 170 ish pounds right now and I'm eating 215 to 225 grams of protein, which is more than I need. Um, but it gives me a little more food volume. Obviously I feel better. It's not going to hurt me, but what are your thoughts on having that? Not just for the satiety effect, which is obvious, but for actually maintaining more muscle mass. And, um, I, I, somebody was talking about somebody I do respect in the evidence-based place, but the only person I've ever heard use, and I don't know if it's, and you, this term might be wrong, but, um, amino acidosis or something like that, almost like a, like an over elevated, uh, oh, amount of yeah. in the bloodstream having a beneficial effect for muscle growth or muscle maintenance. Um, thoughts, is there any, uh, is there um, any benefit to that or reality? So in, uh, the physique recommendation paper that I wrote with Helms and Trexler and Fitchin, we pushed like to, it was it was when you're in a deficit and not even like because bodybuilders are in like a huge deficit forever they're you know moderate deficit deficits just long time um we put like 2.1 to 3.5 grams per kilogram which is like double the, the rda you know um and with athletes i've taken them up as high as you you're going now like even higher i personally like to um overfeed with protein, both in a deficit and when I get want to go into a surplus, right? So like, I, I think there's some benefit there, um, but I'm not like the mechanisms behind it aren't super clear because when you look at NPS response, it, it seems to just plateau at like 40 grams or you know, 25 to 40 grams. You're like, cool, that tells me like this much because I'm doing it every day and I'm doing it four times a day and I'm doing it for 52 weeks, yeah. right? Um, so I think there is some benefit and we just don't have like the mechanistic side done yet. And, and that was, you know, the person actually even said like, there's not a ton of research to back this up. And I think, I think the problem I see with it too, is like, okay, you push yours up pretty high. Um, I push up mine pretty high. I know multiple people who are very intelligent and jacked and experienced in the gym, push up very high but they're not the people that are in the studies either. Like I haven't seen a study where they go, okay, we're going to do protein overfeeding for subjects in a surplus and subjects in a, in cutting in a, like a fat loss phase to try to see this difference. And they've all been bodybuilding for 10 years and they're already very impressive. Right. Yeah. That's where I'm like, Oh, let's see. So it's hard, but um, I would be curious of your thoughts. I mean, just what's you said, you do think it's beneficial. Why? Like, why do you, what's your hypothesis on that? And, and especially during the surplus, because like, that's the time where people go, oh, well, carbs are protein sparing. So you don't need more car or more protein during a surplus. Yeah, I, I honestly, I don't have, I have, I have nothing fancy to say here. <laughs> um, I think it's just tiny benefits over time that add up to something later. So like you would never see a, a you would rarely see like a 1% benefit in a study because the like measurement error was one to 2%, right? But one, 2%, like every time you eat or even like 1% per day better than not might be some of the reasons we're seeing some of these longer term stuff is we just don't have the capacity to measure it. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of where I fall back on. I'm like, okay, well the, the measurement is good, but 
we can get better. And that's where technology just evolves and stuff happens. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I can respect that. I think that, you know, I even have told people that because I tend to push protein a little bit higher during a, even a gaining phase two, which is contradictory. But what I even tell people is, well, as I increase carbs and calories, I'm getting more protein from nut butters and potatoes yeah. and vegetables and shit like that. So I want to bring up my animal source protein or just protein in general so that I'm keeping that higher dose of the high quality protein. So if I add 20 grams carbs, I'm add five grams of fat or five grams of protein, you know, and I just kind of keep inching up like that. Um, and then another thing that the last thing I'll say too, is this is kind of how I, how I really, why I started diving into high carb, low fat research of like, okay, like what is really here? Like, is this, is there any potential benefit for physique athletes? And I think there is, but um, as I think it was Mike Ejotel, who is very good at analogies and coming up with random stories that try to relate. Um, but he just, he was getting ready to talk about it. And he just said, he was like, I mean, if you just look at history of what the most jacked bodybuilders did in the 1990s and the early 2000s and everything, they all followed a low fat, high carb diet all the way to prep. And they tried to have as many carbs as they could all the way through. And if that's not enough evidence to show you that it probably works for getting jacked, I don't know what is, right? And so the same thing with protein. I just know a lot of people who say what you say. I don't really know, but I'm going to keep doing it because <laughs> I think there's something there. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's now, it's like, it's habit, right? Like I have my eggs in the morning and I have my chicken at, at lunch and we have dinner with lots of protein and I'm, you know, I'll have a snack for bed. I'm just like, it's not even, it doesn't even take any effort. Like yeah. I'll take a protein bar. Like I'm just like, it's, it's such ingrained into me. I've been doing it for, for 10 years now. Right. So yeah, same with me. It's actually hard. So if somebody pres- prescribed my protein at body weight, it would be very hard for me to stick to that. Yeah. It's hard for me to get below 200 grams and I'm only 170 pounds at the moment. So it's tough. Um, all right, cool. I think we, I think we hammered that one. Um, the last question that we're going to go over today, I think is going to be really helpful for a lot of people. Cause there's a lot of people who, point the finger at this or maybe don't understand that they actually have a problem with this. So on either end of it, uh, but a lot of people just don't understand cortisol period. So the question is, do high cortisol levels prevent fat loss from occurring? Okay. So the, the easy answer to this one is no for like 95% of people, maybe even 99. Um, in fact, when you inject cortisol into people or you infuse cortisol into people, like they literally waste away. Or if you put people in a really high stress situation um, and then exercise them and underfeed them, they still lose a ton of fat and muscle mass too. Um, So cortisol kind of has a bad rap. I think, you know, if we look at some of the disease populations and even like obese, right? Um, It has this ability to kind of redistribute fat from outside areas that may look better to kind of in the middle of your abdominal section. So that doesn't look good, right? So high cortisol does that. Um, one of the things that it really wait, does. Wait. That was like the, the one of the Paula Quinn things, uh, or not Paula Quinn. Um, uh, oh my God, he just passed away recently. What, or was it? Is it Charles Paula Quinn who passed away? Is I that- mean, he, he did not too long ago. Also, I forgot to give him a shout out for the DUP thing because he invented that. So props. UP? Uh, DUP. Oh, Paul DUP. Quinn. 
Yeah. yeah. He actually had a lot of great like athlete periodization strategies and everything. But I know one of the things that he, he was big about was having high cortisol levels is going to give you stomach fat. And I know a lot of people gave him shit for, cause he, a lot of times he would create these ideas and concepts and sometimes they would actually pan out to be right. And other times it was just his polyquinism, but um, yeah, you're saying that's actually a thing. Yeah, I got a study link in the in the blog. Check it out. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll find another one and put it in there just to back myself up. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things that I think influences people the most with cortisol is appetite. Mm. Um, and I try to tell this to, to clients and, and coaches, and I say, you know, when you get super stressed, right? Because that's like your your cortisol goes up when you get stressed. Um, after you calm down, how do you feel? And most of them will say, I'm, I like, I'm starving, right? Like, I don't know why I just get really hungry and I want to eat. And so there's a couple studies that have looked at this, um, I, again, giving cortisol to people, um, and then measuring food intake. Like they just give them, like, there's the one study in the blog that I link, they just give them a little bit, like you wouldn't even be able to notice it. And then they feed them and they found that the higher the cortisol in the body, the, the more they ate. And so that's, that's I read that study and I was like, man, that's really powerful. And personally, when I get stressed, uh, after the stress is over, like my appetite goes through the roof. Uh, so yeah, yeah, that's, I, I also panic eat, which is terrible. Uh, that's it. That's for another day. Uh, and is that too, like, I mean, lack of sleep can create stress, but it can also create increased cortisol, which is stress. And we know that lack of sleep is, is also linked to higher appetites and higher cravings. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very vicious cycle. I think on our recent team call, I kind of hinted that, that, that of like, if you, if you don't sleep and you drink a lot and then you try to diet, bad things are going to happen. Um, so anyway, but cortisol does have like some, some people come to me and, and they, they don't have anything any blood tests or anything. They're like, I think I have Cushing's disease or Cushing's syndrome, which is basically chronically high cortisol, which is bad, like bad. And so what that does is it does cause like fat gain. So in this case, if you were, if you had Cushing's, your cortisol levels could prevent you from losing fat, right? Like straight up. Now it can cause some other problems associated with the, the fat gain or the obesity effects. And that's metabolic syndrome. So your, you know, your glucose, your blood glucose is all messed up. Um, eventually it can cause cardiovascular disease. It's kind of, kind of scary. Um, but it's definitely a thing that it, I don't see very much, but occasionally I will get a, a client or a coach that'll come to me and be like, Hey, this person says they have, have Cushing's and send them to the doctor. Like we we're talking about before. Um, and they come back and like, Oh, well, yeah, they actually do. And then at that stage, it's like, okay, why do they have this chronically high cortisol? Is it a tumor? Because that's bad, right? We could, we might be able to fix it with surgery maybe, but like, that's really bad. Um, or is it, are they on drugs, right? So some people who have chronic asthma take cortisol or a version of cortisol. Um, some people who have rheumatoid arthritis, other people, they take cortisol drugs. And so they can have all of these problems and not know that it's due to a drug or a tumor or um, some other different things that we can get into later. So that's kind of the, the breakdown of cortisol is it's, it's pretty powerful, 
but I mean, it doesn't necessarily prevent you specifically from losing fat unless you have a big issue. So can you, I think we should probably should do this real quick. It was like define what cortisol does, because I think that people, a lot of people don't actually know what it actually does mechanistically. And I think that, you know, cause most bodybuilders or people trying to build muscle, they know that it's a catabolic hormone. So if cortisol is too high, you're going to break down. You want to be in an anabolic state, not a catabolic state. Um, but it, it's, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, cause I'm not as, I'm not going to say this as well as you will, but it's, it's being a catabolic hormone. It's, it's breaking down things. It's also, like you said, it can break down fat. Technically you see these people with high cortisol and they're actually losing a lot of fat. Um, so probably what's happening when people are having high cortisol, that's causing it's the stress and the eating and being in a surplus to manage that stress, quote unquote, versus cortisol being high. It's the indirect effects of cortisol being high that you need to manage or get cortisol lower. So you don't have those problems, but high cortisol itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. Cause it's essentially like a energy transporter in a sense, right? I mean, it's helping you when we go into the gym and we want to train hard, we kind of want cortisol to go up because that's a fight or flight response to be more powerful and stronger and lift heavier. Um, and if there's, in my opinion, and I don't know if there's research looking at this exact thing, but if there's any valid reason to take an intra workout shake or like an immediate post-workout shake and banana or anything like that, it could potentially be to bring down that cortisol response so you can stop being in fight or flight after your training and that might promote better recovery or, or less breakdown, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you made a lot of really good points that people don't realize. So yes, cortisol is a substrate utilization uh, hormone, right? So it breaks down things so you can burn things. Like that's awesome. We love that. Um, in the morning, your cortisol spikes and it wakes you up. Right. So that, that's kind of cool. That's important. Um, and it's kind of diurnal. So it goes up and down across the day. Um, but it also, so it, it, it does a lot of different things. It's a, it's a pain and inflammatory response type thing too. Right. So if you see, I have this in the blog, if you see, um, or I've ever heard of cortisone shots, cortisone is a form of cortisol and it's just an enzyme transfer thing. Um, and so like, Athletes will get cortisone shots in their muscles and stuff, right? Makes pain and swelling go away. Awesome. Also causes muscle atrophy. Not so awesome. But in the moment, it can be like really good. So yeah, I think, I think you bring up a lot of good points. The other thing I wanted to mention, um, because I was looking at this question earlier, and I, I literally thought it said prevent weight loss. And then I was like, no, it says fat loss. And, that, and that's a very big distinction, or a very good distinction. Um, because cortisol can also bind to your mineral cocorticoid receptors and actually has a stronger binding affinity for those receptors. And what those control is your sodium and your potassium in a lot of different cells. And if you think back to biology, right, that's how water gets in and out of your cells. So if you're binding and messing up this equilibrium of sodium and potassium, you could be maybe holding some, some swelling or some water right, inside your body in different cell components. Um, so that's a, a thing where I'm not going to say it's like the main reason for the, the whoosh effect, if you will, but it definitely plays a role in water retention. And so if you are dieting, if you're doing all the right things and you're not stressed, or maybe you're a little stressed, but not like stressed, um, it could be that cortisol is binding to these other things and you just kind of have to wait it out a little and maybe deload and, and take 
take off a little bit and then it'll kind of normalize again. Um, but it's, it's very quick response too. So, you know, it's not meant to be hot for, for days. It's just kind of like workout pool, morning pool. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you can answer this, but is there almost like a scale of, uh, I don't, of like effect here? Like, and what I mean by that is like, okay, we have Cushing's disease where that is definitely going to, it's going to put a halt on fat loss, potentially cause fat gain. But you also mentioned, you know, high cortisol can cause preferential storage in certain areas. Is there a range of like, cause you even said like 95% of people don't have to worry about it. So is it like, even on this end where it's like, oh, it's going to start affecting you. I mean, you're there and then you're at Cushingson's. You know what I mean? It's, of course, yeah. it's going to be pretty damn high for you to start actually storing body fat and fat in the gut or like having these issues um, versus like, no, like if you have high cortisol levels, it's, it's going to kind of mess with you. It's just not a great effect. And then once you get to the, the serious Cushington, which for people listening, I, I don't have a tally of how many people I've worked with, but between being a personal trainer for six years and my online business, I mean, over the last decade, I've easily worked with a thousand individuals, if not more. And I've, we were talking about before, I've had one person who had that the entire time. And I have one person right now who's still going through some testing that may have that. But in 10 years, that means I've seen it one, maybe two times. Does it mean that I haven't seen stress as an issue? Absolutely not. It's been an issue with plenty of people. And I've worked with plenty of people who are way too stressed out. And that was holding them back, but not because of cortisol. It's because they're having all these lifestyle and environmental issues going on because they're stressed out all the fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's important. Um, and I get, and I get into some dirty details in the, in the blog, but um, shoot, what was your question? The scale. Is there a scale of like, <laughs> Oh, it's scale. Right. Um, so we have, if you go to the doctor, you can get it tested and you have a normal range, right? So if you're within the normal range, you're, you're fine. Like don't even, don't even worry about it. Um, if you're, so this is where I kind of get up. There's not a lot of research to in the medium ranges, right? To say, you know, this, like, I don't even remember the range off the top of my head. Um, but, you know, if you're 10% above the maximal range, you're okay. But if you're 50%, you're not okay. So I, I don't think there's a lot of research on that. And I'd have to dig back in. Maybe that's one of the things I'll put the blog and look into. Um, but I, yeah, I'm not sure. Most likely people don't have to worry about it though, I'm assuming. Probably not. I mean, I think in the grand scheme of things, like your fat loss checklist, right? Is are you sleeping as much as you can? Are you eating good whole foods? Are you trying to stay as low stress as you can, right? Like some people just have stressful personalities and lives and jobs and kids and it's a whole mess, right? But, you know, if you're trying to diet, you need to make sure those things are all buttoned up. And then I will say that there, there's like one or two papers on cortisol blockers, and I'm not convinced they do anything. So kind of be careful with those. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the recommendations I always give are basically the same thing. Get enough sleep, try to de-stress, meditate, journal, do whatever you got to do to, to accomplish that. Go have fun once a week. That's probably yeah. important, you know, do normal things, create space. Um, and then, you know, like I typically like, I mean, you know, I'm a fan of more carbs. So I typically like a higher carb approach because I think there is an effect there. Um, I've seen people lose body fat 
on the same calories by changing to less fat, more carbs. And I think a part of that is one, they're going to have more carbs, energy in the gym, of course. But I, I, I like to believe that it might be helping manage cortisol and stress um, and recovery from what they're doing in their lifestyle, because there is that inverse relationship of insulin and cortisol. You know, if you spike insulin, which usually happens greater when you eat carbs, you are going to bring cortisol down. So if you're doing it at the right times, um, it can be beneficial. And speaking of Paul Quinn, there's actually a thing where he, he condoned uh, less carbs pre-workout, more carbs post-workout for that exact reason. He worked with a lot of Olympic athletes and he's like, I don't want them getting out of fight or flight or high stress response when we're doing one rep, clean jerk snatches, stuff like that. And I was like, okay, like yeah, they have enough glycogen in their system as is like, I can see that. Um, but I think that's taken it to an extreme, but, um, there's, there's a lot of, you have a lot of wiggle room, right. Where it's like, you can tweak things or you can try things and, you know, you've got to find what optimizes like whatever works for you best within your ranges that you already have. Right. So like you mentioned, it might be more carbs. I'm, I'm kind of a low fat person also. Um, and so if you can make that change, like do it right. If it helps do it, if it, if it doesn't help and you're like, no, it makes you feel like crap, then, then don't. Yeah. Um, I do have a quick question on sleep since we brought it up briefly and I know you're a big fan of making sure you get enough sleep. Um, I was listening to, there's really only a few podcasts I still listen to in, in this space. Um, mm-hmm. And one of them is stronger by science. Cause they do a pretty good job. Um, yeah. And I like to take notes from their stuff for like what we do with this stuff, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, Greg was talking about sleep and he actually, the way he framed it was almost like, yeah, I don't think it matters that much. And I was actually kind of surprised. And he was saying like, there's not enough research on sleep benefiting hypertrophy and strength and stuff like that. And athletes to make it very convincing for me. And, uh, and I think the example he used, I think it was him was basically like, you know, there's a lot of pro athletes that don't get that much sleep and they're anomalies and they training really hard, but there's a lot of college athletes that don't get much sleep because they're traveling they're on the bus they're doing these things. And, uh, and, and so I, like it was less convincing and it was kind of like, damn, that's like, that's a pretty valid point. I've also seen people do better with everything they do when they sleep more. So I don't know if it's like, is it, is it one of those things where certain people, maybe it's just, cause even me, if I get four hours of sleep, my cravings and like, that's not my issue. That might be more cranky, but like the food stuff doesn't, doesn't get to me. That's not my thing. Yeah. Is that like just a mental block or mental side of my own personal personality like what is that or um or do you think greg's just completely wrong and oh man i do i do love greg um and we have probably i don't know i might have him on sleep research i don't know though we when i went on their podcast we talked about sleep a little bit too um and we kind of were spitballing the same thing it's like you know if you look at the studies six hours of sleep is not much different than seven hours of sleep, right? Four hours of sleep or three hours of sleep. Now that's a, there's some, some good military studies that will show you that that's bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but they weren't looking at hypertrophy, right? And like most of the people who are studying big sleep restriction don't care about any of that hypertrophy stuff. They just care about like survival or psychology or, or just, you know, other things. Um, so I can see how, you know, the line between 
six, seven, eight is blurry, five maybe for some people. Like if yourself, if you can control your, if you can control your appetite and your your mechanisms or, or sorry, your stress and your life and your training doesn't drop. Like, I mean, sure for certain periods you should, you could probably pull it off, but it's again that chronic versus acute thing. Right. Right. So it's like in a study, six weeks, six hours versus eight hours, no difference. Cool. In life, right? 52 weeks a year, right? Six hours versus eight hours. Who's going to, who's going to feel better, do better in the long term. That's okay. That makes sense. <laughs> and I think that was, that was what I was going to ask too. Cause I think there's a lot of people that it's like the seven to nine window is the thing. I don't know yeah. anybody who actually gets nine hours every night, but most people are like, that's why everybody says you got to get at least seven and aim for eight. But that would be my question is like, cause I was about to say, well, okay. If, if there's not real difference between six to eight, then I'm the type where I'm like, well, shit, if I can get away with six, then I'm going to get away with six. Cause that's more hours to do things. And that's yeah. how my brain works. But if there was, and there probably will never be this, but if there was a research study that showed me after a year of doing that, you are significantly performing less and you would have accomplished more in your year. If you slept that extra hour every night, I would be more motivated to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think you can kind of tell, like, personally, I mean, you have to pay attention and track your sleep a good bit, but, um, like, I even notice seven hours versus seven and a half, because that's my sweet, my, my sweet spot is like seven and a half, like, it's perfect. But when I go under seven for like a week or more, I just start, like, it doesn't matter if I'm bulking, dieting, maintaining, training, it just goes down. Like, I just, I just don't like it. Um, so, like. I mean, you could, you could test or our listeners could test like, and say, let me try to sleep for a, for a week for six hours and see what happens. And then, you know, extend a little bit further and then, you know, like, okay, I can do it for this long and then try seven hours. And most, like I said, most people eight, nine is just hard to do. So I've kind of been testing this. So I got, I got an order okay. and so I actually ordered an ordering and I ordered the wrong, like I wanted to order one that looked just like my wedding ring. Cause then I, mm-hmm. I don't not a ring guy so i was like i, yeah. I want a ring i just want to wear one and i ordered the wrong color it didn't it like it wasn't like the black shiny that like mother ring so i was gonna return it and then i saw my buddy and he wanted one so bad for a while and i was like you know i did you can have this so i gifted it to him and so we've been kind of going back and forth of like how's your like what's your score and what's this and i will have the same readiness score at six that he will have when he gets eight so i do think there's an individual factor what i actually pay more attention to now on it because I aim for six hours a night is like my goal. And if I hit that, my score is great. And I can train hard. Everything's fine. Is my latency. How long does it take me to get to sleep? Because I'm a, I'm a pretty, like I fall asleep quick, but if I see it, so they say they recommend 10 to 20 minutes is like, or 15 to 20 minutes is like your ideal zone. If it goes too long, you're like restless. And if it goes, if you fall asleep in like less than 10 minutes, then you have an issue. Like you're too burnt out or tired. And there's yeah. some days I'll look at it and my latency is three minutes. Like I literally hit the bed <laughs> and I'm out. And so for me, that's my gauge of like, okay, if it only took me <laughs> three minutes to fall asleep, I'm too tired. I'm too burnt out or I'm doing too much of my day or, um, or I didn't get enough sleep. And so that, that was like the big thing for me is like, okay, if I can consistently get six hours and manage my training well, then my latency stays at that like 15 minute mark, which is ideal. And then I'm, I'm good. But once I dip below six hours, it always, it hits me. So. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, 
Like I have, I know people who are like that. I fall asleep probably within like five minutes and I'm, it's not because I'm like burned or anything. It's just what happens. I fall asleep really easy. Um, my wife hates me for it. She's like, how do you fall asleep? I'm sitting over here for like 30 minutes reading and you're just like, I don't know. So I'm like, oh, do you want to watch our show? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, what happened on that last episode? <laughs> Recap. <it for> <laughs> right. So. Well, cool, dude. This is uh, this is perfect. I think this is a great episode. We hit on three topics um, that were really, really good. I mean, we filled up a full hour, which is great because I mean, there was a lot of questions I had on everything. So I think we were able to spin it a bunch of different ways. Um, by the time this got this airs, if you guys are listening right now, the blog is live, so we'll link that in the show notes of this podcast because they will air at the same time. Um, and yeah, we'll catch you guys next time.